You're listening to the Law of Attraction Radio Network. Welcome to Quantum Leap Book Club. During the next hour, beloved mind scientist Parisha and her guests from around the world will read and discuss various best-selling books with well-known authors. Every show will apply retention techniques designed to help you to absorb powerful knowledge to effectively change your life. Join us every week for a thought-provoking hour and re-listen as often as you can. You will be delighted by what you learn and you will be excited by the results. Are you ready to take the quantum leap? Here's Parisha. Greetings and welcome to the Law of Attraction Network's Quantum Leap Book Club. Our host Parisha will not be joining us tonight as she is traveling and teaching, so her co-hosts will cover tonight's material. Our co-hosts are Trina Cooper, lifelong entrepreneur from Denver, Colorado, Rosemary Heyer, English teacher working with children in Frankfurt, Germany, Dr. Joyce Mullenhauer, doctor of naturopathy in Kingman, Arizona, Marianne Love, psychologist from Melbourne, Australia, Maria Jacques, a licensed marriage and family therapist from Miami, Florida, and Diana Aljabri is in finance and real estate, broker owner of her own business in, uh, in Canada. And I'm your guest host, Deborah Adler. Our book tonight, we are beginning The Holographic Universe by Michael Talbot, and we are broadcasting through the Law of Attraction radio network. So I believe that um, Maria is going to uh, start us off with the beginning pages, or? Hey, Deb, it's Geraldine. It's, it's Geraldine. <laughs> Got it. Okay, very good. Geraldine's going to start us off with the beginning pages. Yeah, and just before we jump into those pages too, just to say how very uh, interesting this book is in terms of diving into the introduction in the background, and it says it all really started with the junior who was in, in France and he wanted to look at um, something that Einstein had said wasn't wasn't real that that it wasn't possible to have subatomic particles which is either protons or electrons sub just means smaller than and the atom so things that are smaller than the atom things that make up the atom the electrons and and protons that they are actually linked to each other but what he found was that they were and then this continues into the book but i love that it's a junior you know it shows all of us that we can ask a question because it goes on to show so much of what's really being looked at today in science. And I note that even the copy of the book that I have is more than 30 years old. So we need to ask the question, why are we just finding out about this now? And right in the beginning of the chapter, they go to let us know about a hologram. And it starts with Star Wars, which I love. And anyone who's seen Star Wars will be able to recall the section where um, the little android comes and beams a holographic image to Luke, and that image is Princess Leia, and she's asking for help from Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's just giving us an example of what a hologram is. So a hologram has all of the information in it and it can even look three-dimensional. So what they're saying is, hey, maybe the whole universe, including you and me, is a hologram. Maybe we're all projected from somewhere else. So that's really the setting of the book. 
and uh, literally right in the beginning it, it's got the words, you know, really maybe we are projections from a level of reality beyond our own, beyond our own time and space. Now this is pretty, may seem pretty far out there, but the book is, as we go through the holographic universe, we're going to see more of that explained. So hang on for this this ride which explains so many of the mysteries that the other science, the other theories of science were not able to explain. And because this particular scientific theory, the one called the holographic model, is able to explain things like near-death experiences, like um, lucid dreaming, like amazing synchronicities, things that go beyond what's normally expected and things that are so frequent that they are what's called statistically significant so that is the chance of them happening just random is is not possible so they say something's happening here they haven't been able to explain it with other science but they can explain it with this holographic universe theory so two very eminent scientists both independently I'll say came up with this holographic theory, but at the same time I definitely acknowledge that there are traditional people and traditional ways of being across this whole planet that have spoken about things from this perspective. But as we're looking at a, a, a Western-based scientific book, we're looking at two scientists' early careers, both coming to the point of saying, yes, this holographic model of the universe where everything is projected from somewhere else is a very definite possibility. So um, to continue and, and, and just kind of to reiterate what Geraldine also said, I'm really excited about delving into this book because, you know, for the years that I've been in the studies of, of you know, consciousness, you know, I've always heard the saying, you know, uh, reality is an illusion. You know, what we're seeing is, is all an illusion. And I think to the mainstream person, when you say that, at least to me, even when I was starting out, it's like, what do you mean it's an illusion? Well, what do you mean it's a hologram? You know, we're not taught to think that way. You know, we're, we're taught to think in you know, what you see is what is there, you know, it's, 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 it's physical. And this book really is gonna, I'm, I, I know, and I'm excited about it to just delve into the science of changing our perceptions about that. So the part, the section that I'm covering is where he, he begins to describe what a hologram is. And I really encourage our listeners um, because the pictures that are in the book are very helpful. I tend to be a very visual learner and, and I like visuals to enhance my understanding of concepts, especially when it's challenging, challenging me to change my, my normal way of thinking, so to speak. So the pictures and what I'm going to be discussing, there's a very description of um, what a hologram is on page uh, 15 that I will be speaking from. So if you have the book, turn to page 15 and kind of look at the diagram. And if you don't, um, definitely make sure to go back and look at it. 
but he, he, he describes how a hologram is produced. And a hologram, what they do is they produce a single laser light, okay? And it's split into two separate beams. The first beam is bounced off the object that is being photo photographed. So let's say, for example, they're, they're using an apple. Then the second beam is allowed to collide with the reflected light from the first beam, okay? And the picture really shows this very clearly. Then what you have is what's called the resulting interference pattern. And that is what is recorded on film. Then that's when you have the hologram, okay? Kind of like the hologram that uh, Geraldine referred to uh, from Star Wars. And what's exciting about this is that you can, that he goes on to further explain that what that if you take that image and you cut it up or cut it in half, you can still reproduce from half of the image the whole apple. And he even went on to explain you can keep even breaking it up even more in smaller pieces. And even from the very small piece, you can still reproduce a whole image. And what the researcher Primum found and understood from this experiment was that every part of our brain can contain the information necessary to recall a whole memory. He also discovered that vision is also holographic. And what was believed at the time, and of course, you know, we're talking about, you know, I mean, many, many, many years, what was believed at the time was that there was, there was this one-to-one -one correspondence between what we see and the way the image is represented in the brain. So for example, if I'm looking at a square, then the electrical activity in the visual cortex in the brain also has an image of, the, of that square. But what Primrim found was that this wasn't the case at all. And there wasn't this type of correspondence at all and began to apply the same pr principles that he was finding with vision and the hologram that he was able to apply the same principles to vision. And later on, he describes how he was able to cut you know, he did, he did several experiments. And from these experiments, he saw that he could cut like 98% of a cat's optic nerve, and it wouldn't impair his ability to perform not just simple visual tasks, but complex visual tasks. So this whole idea that, you know, one-to-one -one correspondence that we see an object and therefore our mind has it and, and that's what it is, was totally blown out of the water. So this kind of information excites me. It's, and, and you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to grasp, but, but stay with us because I, I know this book and the, and the further we get into it and our co-hosts continue to share, it's really gonna bring in another aspect of reality that I'm excited about. So I'll leave it to my next co-host. Fantastic, thank you very much for that. And I believe we're going on to Trina. 
Yes, you are. This is Trina in Denver, Colorado. And, um, you know, I've known about this book for probably 20 years. It's been um, circling around and I have never read it. And so now I'm like really excited now that we've started into the book and I'm wondering why I didn't read it years ago because um, there's so much to consider in this book. And I kept thinking as I was reading, what if we were taught this when we were really young? What if we learned about more of this stuff instead of like what Maria was talking about, this idea of the what the eye sees is what the brain sees or what's represented in the brain. That's what I was taught when I was in school. And I remember as a kid just sitting there pondering like, you know, is there like a picture, like a TV in the back of my head that picks this up? I couldn't quite figure that out. But anyway, um, the experiments did show that there was no one-to-one -one correspondence. And then there was also no discernible pattern to how the electrodes fired in the brain. So they, it, the brain kind of fired all over the place. And that made him really consider um, was vision also distributed just like they were showing with the memory. So this whole theory of the whole in every part of nature of, of the hologram explains a lot, not just in memory, but also for visual. And it explains why when brains are turned around or um, or something else is done, things people can still do the work or can still visually do things or see things. So he kept asking the question, was the brain using some sort of internal hologram? And that took him to the next question, which was what wavelength pattern might the brain be using? And that drew him into a possible answer because they knew that the neurons in the brain, there was a, an electrical communication that was going on. And again, the neurons in the brain, they look like little trees with the little branches going out. Well, once the energy hit the end, the electrical communication hit the end, it was kind of broadcast out, just like the ripples that you would see on a pond. And this, they crisscrossed each other and that created some interference, just like what's created in a hologram. So he began to think maybe this pattern in the brain is similar to the patterns in, the, in holographic properties um, that they're finding in the filming that they're doing. And I thought it was pretty cool because this ripple on the pond and the interference as the waves come across each other Again, it's being reflected possibly in the way that the brain works. So we do have to watch nature and learn from nature. There's other puzzles that were also explained by the holographic brain model. Um, others became aware of what Primer was doing and began their own research in other areas. So they took it beyond memory and beyond vision. So the first one was this vastness of our memory. How come we can um, remember so much? How can we store all these memories? And what they found with the, um, with the holo hologram in the film was that 
they could literally project one image on a film by angling the lasers a certain way and then do another image on a film by angling the um the the lasers another way and then when they came back with the lasers the different holograms would come up as they angled the laser so they they could actually on one inch of the holographic film they could record the amount of information that was in 50 bibles and they thought wow that's going to make a huge difference in thinking about the way we store memory another one was the ability to recall and forget um, again, they project these images on this film, but when they tilt the film back and forth, images will pop up depending upon the angle. So they might appear and then disappear. So what does that mean with memory? Could memory be um, similar to that where we may be able to recall some memories, not recall others? And one thing that popped up for me was, wow, if we can learn how to tilt that, how to find the right angle to bring up this memory. Can we do it for all of the information that's available in the quantum field since we're actually all connected? I was thinking that would be something that would be really cool to consciously learn how to do. Now, associative memory was another thing and associative memory is like when we hear something or we smell something and it gives us a memory of something in the past when this smell or sound actually occurred. So they found that if a beam was bounced off two objects at the same time and the interference captured on the film, when one object is illuminated by the laser and it's bounced into the film, the picture of the other object would show up. And then they would try the other object and the same thing would happen. So they thought, all right, that's kind of an interesting, an interesting experience. Is that why if we have a memory of a smell, all of a sudden the whole memory of the experience comes back. And there's only a couple more that, that were in these pages that I'm covering. There's an ability to recognize familiar things. And so they're thinking that maybe if a second laser is, is bounced off um, to the film, first they do the one image, then they do another image. and it might be a little bit different, but what they find is if the images are similar, a bright point occurs on the film, where if they're very dissimilar, then a different point, then no point shows up on the film. So could that be why we can recognize somebody's face from a crowd of people we were with or um, someone who's aged that we can still see an image there that we haven't seen in a long time? And they found that this is super sensitive as well. It can literally pick up prints on granite when um, someone has touched granite and taken a film first and then taken another picture later. And then we have photographic memory as well. So they talked about some photographic memory. Now, when you have a photographic memory, do you have such intense focus on this image that you can recall it in your brain and it's almost like reading or seeing exactly what you saw. And the question that came up in the studies here was, does the hologram work that way too? And maybe we access more of the memory when we have a photographic memory than we do 
like a smaller region of the film if we don't have a holographic memory or when we don't pay quite as much attention, maybe we won't remember. So these are some of the things that have come up over time with um, this whole concept of holographic uh, brain research. And I think it's gonna add a lot to going forward. I really wanted a chance to go back and actually research a little bit about how far has this come? Because again, this book was originally published in um, 1991. So that's 30 years ago, like Geraldine said. How much has happened in those 30 years that isn't even presented in this book? So that's something the readers may want to go reference themselves. And so that's what I've got to offer today for some of the pages. That was basically pages about 19 through 24, 23, if you want to follow along. Awesome. Thank you very much. And um, Joyce, I think you're going to take us through pages 24 to 26. Yes? Yes, I am going to do that. Um, looking back and my own exposure to holograms, the, in 1990, I was in Cherokee, North Carolina, and we had the, the privilege of a, going to a museum there that actually had a holographic um, presentation of the history of the Cherokee people. And I remember looking at this and, you know, scrunching up my eyebrows, <laughs> wondering, what is this that I'm looking at that looks so realistic that I can see more than one dimension? And I, I truly left there not re really having even a basic understanding of what I looked at other than it looked so real. So in, in the, the few pages that I have been reviewing here, page 24 to 26, the, the statement's repeated more than once of it being the hologram is an illusion of things located where they are not. <laughs> this, that just tickles my sense of humor. That I'm looking, I'm studying things that are actually not where I think they're supposed to be or what science says they're supposed to be. So the gentleman, Dr. Carl Prebram, I'm not just sure how you say his name, he did a, a, a lot of studying and, and experiments. So he actually spoke of an of experiment, a demonstration of taking your elbow and writing your name in the air with your elbow. Well, the astonishing thing about this particular little exercise is that that's not supposed to be something that the brain and the elbow can coordinate together. But it's very simple. It, it wasn't, it isn't a difficult task. So he went on to explain that this is supposed to be a hardwired program, that the elbow writing on in the air like that accurately, your name, shouldn't even be easy to do. So it was kind of an introduction and opening to the brain being capable of things far beyond what the general public consider. So here I am um, seeing this 32 years ago, this, this presentation, the book, this book was published after I saw that. And now I'm looking at this information and putting back into place a little bit, some of what that was all about. So the main topic for me today to cover is 
transferring learned skills. And that idea of the bringing with your elbow is, is an example of that. And then also he talks about um, a, a musician or a pianist who can actually transpose a song from one key to another. So those items are interrelated, but not being a musician, that sounds like that takes something extra in the brain. And then the phantom limb example, and as a nurse, I certainly have looked after people who've had major discomfort and the leg or the arm or the, even sometimes the toe is still talking loudly. So one of the studies that is, was done was um, placing electrodes at, the, at both knees. And they came up to a number of conclusions with this, but one of the ones that astonished them the most was that there actually was a sensation in the space between the knees. So again, this is an example of something that appears to be what it isn't. <laughs> and I think that, that that statement's going to actually lead us to lots of different directions. So the overall idea in, in this these couple of pages is our brain is very flexible. The study they did with, with salamanders and these poor little critters had their brains taken out and placed back in different positions. When the brain was out of the, the little salamander, the salamander was really confused and couldn't function. Then the brain was put back in, upside down, right side up, all different positions. Didn't matter what position the brain was put back in, the little salamander started to eat normally again. So I think there's a lot of impact on that little story that we'll be able to go back to as we get more information in this book, because the brain, certainly in quantum science, we have learned that the brain is a whole lot more than appearances. So the holograms in the brain are, are connected very much. Wow, pretty amazing results. And uh, Mary Ann Love we have uh, coming up next. Yes, you do. And I'm really happy to be here reading this book. I think it's really interesting. I have heard about this book a long time ago, but never read it. So I'm really glad. Although it does stretch your mind quite a bit. So I highly recommend getting the book um, and looking at the pictures and, and reading along with us and discussing it. Um, now, I am doing page 27 to 29 if you want to follow along um, with me. But what was interesting here is that there was a a mathematician physicist in the 18th century who actually found a way to take a simple pattern and convert it into a language of simple waves and then convert it back to its original pattern. And so this really sparked off a lot of investigation and research more recently in the 1900s, 1960s and 70s to actually look at how does this apply to our senses and how we function as humans. So it's sort of a similar process, like most of us know how the TV works, like it converts a, an image into electromagnetic frequencies and then converts it back to its original image. So the system we're talking about is similar to that, taking a pattern 
making it, you know, using a mathematical formula um, to put it into a language of waves and then you can send it back to the pattern. So um, researchers have looked at this um, in terms of how our brain even works and they're really suggesting that the brain is doing that. They're saying that the brain cells are actually looking and are, is like a, a frequency analyzer. So rather than we think we're seeing a table in front of us, our brain is picking up the frequency of the table and then converting that to an image that we see. So um, I thought I'd give you the definition of frequency and wave because it's a, it's a word that's used a lot, but I don't know if you could, like if you could honestly say you could um, give the definition of it. So I thought it might be helpful to give the definition of it. So a wave, a wave is a disturbance uh, in a medium that carries energy without the net movement of the particle. Now that kind of sounds more confusing than than anything, but if you think about it, like a bit like a wave in an ocean, the energy is moving through it, but the net movement of the particle isn't moving along. So you could consider it sort of going up. It's more of an, a disturbance that's moving along. And the frequency is the number of waves that pass a fixed point in a unit of time. So how fast is that moving? How many how many waves is going through? So um, what they found then is that um, that not only does the visual system potentially work like a frequency converter that actually followed um, Fourier's formula. They also found that the other senses are actually functioning in a similar way so that the ears are picking up frequency, um, that the sense of smell is actually picking up frequency as well. Um, and there's less research on the others, but the other senses are also potentially picking up frequency. Um, and so one of the experiments they did that had implications here was that the a scientist called Nikolai Bernstein actually put little um, lights around a person's body and had them move and then the equipment just picked up the movement of the lights of the body and what they found if they used Fourier's formula they could actually predict where that person was going to move next in their dance movement and so what this meant is that the brain even potentially stores movement as frequency and follows this frequency pattern um, and it might explain why we even learn so quickly I mean all of us can identify with just getting in the flow of something like if you're learning a new thing and then you're just kind of in the flow and you sort of pick it up it's not that you learn every particular movement but you get a sense of the whole movement and just through the flow of that you can learn like to a dance movement or riding a bike. Um, I kind of think about it when I learned snowboarding. You kind of had this feeling. It's a lovely feeling when you're kind of going down the mountain on a snowboard in the flow of like people probably get it with skateboarding as well, like in this particular flow of feeling and that the body actually um, remembers and uses frequency patterns in order to learn and store information. So that's what that research showed and it, there's a formula which is interesting that um depicts all of it potentially how the brain works so 
Um, and they also discussed that the brain doesn't see in pictures. We don't see in pictures. Um, so similar to a hologram. So the brain is potentially seeing just frequencies and it's, it's um, you know, transformed back through our senses into what we could describe as pictures and things, but actually we're just uh, big frequency analyzers, our whole system. So that really puts turns everything on its head, doesn't it, when you think, you know, when you really look at who we are and what we are and what we're capable of, if we just simply expand um, our understanding about that, sky's the limit. Yes, indeed. So um, we have, uh, oh, we have a bit of time yet here. And so do we have uh, some additional comments or you want to come back and summarize some or respond to uh, one of the other co-hosts? Uh, Geraldine in Sydney, and yeah, adding on to that too, how they say that the, um, the brain and the visual happened anywhere. It was likewise with memory. So they, they thought at first that your memory is inside your head, but then likewise with that, what they did to the uh, salamanders, they did similar things to the brains of rats. Not a nice experiment, but it did also show that the rats were able to continue finding their way around a maze and things like that, even when parts of their brain had been severed. And I know that I, I definitely skipped over some of the very early part of the book when I heard it twice talk about lobotomies. And this is a term for when um, a surgical implement is used to separate the left and right hemispheres of the brain. And it was found uh, to result in people being very docile and they said that it was a way of managing problem people and uh, my my great aunt was subjected to that as well she was actually very smart and was at university at a very young age and then uh, became well we'd say had some mental health issues and the solution was lobotomy so I remember reading it and just being feeling that trigger of it's so insane that that could be so recent and thought to be okay. And again, we had a couple of scientists who were happy to feel true to themselves and be able to say, no, we don't do that. And we had some that said it's, they don't do it in their lab, they don't do it in their surgery. And, you know, we see these things as something of the past. But it also lets us question if these happened in the past and the person who invented it also got given the Nobel Prize. So if that's the level of things that we can say is okay while we're researching and looking into things, how does that relate to today in how we're looking at the magnificence of our brains and the importance of what we put into our bodies and into our brains, whether it be medication or likewise, uh, and work out, you know, what's okay? What is the ideal? Is it ideal that people become docile? Or is it ideal that we learn that we are amazing and what we do with our thoughts and feelings really creates the world around us? Thank you, Geraldine. Uh, who else would like to? Uh, yeah, I, I just, I kind of want to jump off on that because that was kind of my feeling too um, in starting to read this book and how it is challenging me to stretch and, and, and the implications of it, I guess, is just 
you know, as Marianne was, was discussing, you know, the, it just amazes me how, how much capacity our brains are really capable of and how much more where we as human beings are capable of picking up that we don't. And that's what's really exciting for me about, you know, journeying into this book is that the more that I have begun to work with all of this and, 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 and through reading these materials, it's the realization of just how much is really at our disposal. And yet how much indoctrination we have been subjected to and allowed ourselves to be subjected to as children, we had no choice, but how that can be different, how, you know, we can begin to really come into the full potential of ourselves and be able to see, oh, okay, that's not just a table. You know what I mean? It's just, it, there's much more there that is making up of that table. And it's a picture in my mind, or, you know, it's, it's really moving beyond just what's in front of your nose. That is, that is really exciting for me in, in, in all this material. Excellent. Uh, Trina, you had something you wanted to share? I did kind of like the question that Marianne had brought up about, you know, what does this really mean about who we are? Like, are we just, you know, spirit, are we using the body as frequency receivers to have an incredible experience? I'm not really sure, but there's a piece in here about the reaction of the scientific community. And as this information was coming out, some of the scientists were just like, oh, this is ridiculous, you know, and they all had their different ideas about how the brain and the body worked and, and, you know, is it chemicals? Is it electrical? Um, maybe a lot of them didn't, they weren't persuaded enough. Um, so they kind of held that old, that old stuck in the box feeling, which is what we just learned about in breaking the habit of being ourselves about what we need to do in order to expand ourselves into and become greater. Um, then there were the other groups of people who just said, Hey, um, you know what you guys, the work you're doing is really making us question the old way of thinking about things. And maybe we need to take a look at this and maybe we should try an experiment about, um, you know, they all started taking off. So the, the community seemed to be somewhat split on whether they believe um, in this holographic idea or not. And that's why I was kind of wondering, um, since this was written 30 years ago, how much has the scientific community actually shifted? So that's um, some of the questions I wanted to bring up as well. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, We do have a few minutes since we started a bit late. Do we have someone else who wanted to make a contribution? Yes. I definitely do. Um, from the medical standpoint, my mind went in a number of directions reading and studying this today. There has been such a, a acceptance that there's, there's limitations to healing. And with what we have been studying in the most recent weeks with the previous book of Dr. Joe Dispenza, 
It is so much, there is so much power and possibility in what thoughts we have. So I, when we, when I consider that in the medical field, it's just taken for granted that if there's damage on one side of the brain, then X to Z is the result. Well, I'm wondering as I read this, whether that really probably isn't true anymore. If the medical establishment put out different thoughts about it and the same way about the phantom pain, it's just sort of expected and accepted that a person that's had an amputation will have phantom pain. Well, that's kind of a dead end to be at. And possibly as we go through this book more, we'll find that they do have more ideas, but certainly some outer research is something I want to do. And then my brain also went to martial arts and thinking of all the young people that uh, practice and practice with each other and at times actually have injuries. And in the little part that they just mentioned that with the hologram, they actually now can create form and substance. So I just thought, boy, if in martial arts, they could learn all the skills with a hologram, then not only might they learn more in a shorter time, but they could learn without any injuries. So that was where my brain went with that. That's um, really interesting, Joyce, and it, it makes me really start to question what's real about anything as well. Like if everything's a frequency and we're only then seeing it as our brain, our senses have somehow interpreted it. I know grandmother often shares that we see with our brain and not with our eyes. So therefore we're seeing with how we are already pre-programmed. So we'll take a frequency in and then we'll see what we've pre-programmed and if the program, if we can, if we change the program, then we'll see something more or new or see it differently. And how do we change the program? We learn and we get new information and we wire the brain in new ways. And it helps to be around people, I think, that are able to see expanded sense of reality because then that um, even by frequency alone or by education helps us wire our brain. Um and then we see the world a different way. Like what is real then? Like of anything, what is real? If everything is a wave and a frequency, everything, then what what is real? <laughs> you know, and so and then how do we use our body then as this frequency converters, converter and interpreter and generator? to then shift reality around us and actually help ourselves to get healthy, wealthy and happy and also help others to um, be in that space. If it's simply frequency, to me, then it simply can be changed <laughs> as well or reinterpreted. Maybe there's lots of frequencies going on, but we're only perceiving the one we've programmed, which might be a negative, um, painful one. It might be lack or it might be poverty, but actually the frequency of wealth is all around you. And we're not picking it up because the brain's not wired that way. So anyway, it, asks, it, it sort of begs to explore all these philosophical questions, which I enjoy. Hmm. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that reflection. Uh, did did uh, we have anyone wanting to just summarize uh, before we go on? Sure. A, a, a quick one. Anytime I look at this topic, what helps me is 
and I was thinking it again as Marianne was saying that is radio waves because it's quite a tangible that if I had a radio here and I tuned it in to a particular station I would hear that very clearly especially if I tuned it well if I then move the dial to pick up a different frequency I would be able to hear equally very clearly a different reality of the music or the talk show or whatever it was so that to me shows me that there's waves out there and depending on the broadcast and how my ears receive it I can receive a totally different reality be it from you know hip-hop to talk show to classical and it's all here right now it just depends on how I turn that dial so yes as a frequency uh creator and a frequency interpreter if I really am like a radio but also the broadcast place then it allows a possibility of knowing that yes I can change what I see I can change what I put out there very good anyone else you know on Star Trek they always describe the final frontier as being space but it occurred to me a long time ago that really the final frontier is is the mind and and energy right you know it's it's within it's not I mean it's all over but <laughs> you know what I'm saying that's really the final frontier of self-discovery that's well, a really good point Deb because maybe the maybe that term space is that Maybe yeah. space is the mind because, as we said, the, the whole of the no thing out there, people call it space, the no thing, but that's where all the information is that we're either sending to or receiving from. Exactly. All right. Well, everyone, I, I, we deeply appreciate all of your contributions this evening and, as always, very insightful and, and personal. Uh, it's that time to conclude our studies this evening, and uh, we thank you for sharing your time and your energy with us. You matter and count, so you will always make a difference. And we look forward to being having you be with us next week as we make that leap into greater consciousness. Have a powerful week and allow your light to shine and always all good things to you. Thank you for listening to Quantum Leap Book Club. For more information where you can contact us, go to LOARadioNetwork.com forward slash quantum hyphen leap. Have a great week. <laughs>